recorded live. Fragments of Silicon, where last-minute reprieves are sometimes a thing. Welcome to another installment of Fragments of Silicon, where we're kind of coming down from an adrenaline high. Like, Adam, you may now put your hair back in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, just dealing with some last-minute stuff that's um, thankfully no longer relevant to the conversation. Anyway, I'm your host, Adam. Joining me, as always, are Petty Fan. Yo. Um, Galix. I am here. And Twilight Winter. I'm alive. <laughs> Indeed. All right, so let's waste no time in getting to the news. Um, let's start with Petty Fan. How has uh, life been treating you this week? Uh, well, we had to take the new kittens to the vet Monday because they've been having a cold for the past week. That was an enjoyable adventure because the vet was like half an hour away. And apparently they don't like car rides. Hmm. Don't blame them. Yeah. I'm like, it's a pain to take my cat to the vet, too. Yeah. Like, I haven't really taken Luna on a car ride, but Noise didn't seem to mind when we brought her home, but that's the last time she was in a car, so... Yeah. Oh, I, I remember how painful it was taking my cat cross state. Oh, oh, joy. Oh. <laughs> I had to use um, knockout drugs to do that. Damn. Yeah. Yeah, some animals really dislike yeah. transportation. Yeah, yeah, and my cat's uh, one of them. Anyway. So, that was an enjoyable adventure that took longer than it should have. Yeah. Um, outside of that, I my mom's birthday is next week and I don't really have anything to get her because I'm trying to save money to buy a new refrigerator. Because mm. refrigerators aren't cheap. Mm-hmm. Especially seeing how I have to pay for it myself still. Well, uh, there are certain refrigerators that are cheap. It's just I wouldn't recommend buying them. Yeah. No. Like, we're probably going to be looking at used, but the cheapest used one I've seen is still $260. Sounds about right. So, yeah, that's going to be enjoyable to figure out how we're going to make that work. <laughs> and also, Sega had to basically punch me in the gut and reveal that there's going to be a collector's edition for Sonic Mania. Yeah, but that's not coming until, what, May? Yeah. Like, it's a pretty impressive collection of feelies for, like, a download code. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, <laughs> that's the problem I have with collector's edition. It has no disc. Yeah, but I mean, who and doesn't then, want a? Tw- but I mean, who doesn't want a foot tall Sonic statue of Sonic standing on a Sega Genesis that does the Sega thing when you push a button? Yeah, like they really missed a good opportunity to turn the cartridge thing it comes with into a USB drive with the game on it. Well, it's like it's something uh, to take up with them if we ever have the marketing team on the show. 
<laughs> yes, hopefully one day. Yeah. Well, it's like I told you that they're probably not responding because the game is too far out. Yeah. You know, it's like it looks like I wasn't too far off the mark. Mm-hmm. The game is NDAs fun. and whatnot. Yeah. So anyway, anything else? Um, not really, except the most done with the Turing test for our review next. Well, on Sunday. Mm. Uh, okay. So, uh, go. Yeah. Uh, not a whole ton going on around here. Uh, thankfully, I planned ahead this week because, I, as I expected, the road work was once again right at the spot where it's a pain in the ass around where the exit is to get off at home. Uh, <laughs> uh so that was a thing. Um... A couple of the Kickstarters that I had backed earlier in the year came in, a Pathfinder Dice one and uh, some books. So that's cool. And, uh, yeah, uh, I was going to play Rive. Our beta version of that disappeared since the actual game came out. So uh, that review is... Try the thing we're doing instead. Yeah, Yeah, that review is currently tabled until we actually get a proper review. I may actually get the game myself anyway, even if we're not reviewing it, because it was kind of interesting, and I want to see how they changed it from the early version I played, although, honestly, I'm pretty terrible at it. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of beside the point. It's like, you don't have the final version of the game, so we can't can't review it until we get the final version of the game. Right. And so yeah, that's where that is, um, and I also am hoping to be able to get a start on sorcery after I play some of the other games that we're looking at. Yeah. Um, all right, uh, Twilight, you're up. Um. Well, been working on a computer. I'm been wanting to build. Well, I got the parts for it, but <sighs> not having much luck with the again to work part. What's wrong? It won't turn on. For some reason. Is it beeping at you, or is it just not turning on? It's just being silent. Hmm. It does have power, correct? Mm-hmm. I might have overlooked something. And the power uh, cable's plugged in on both ends, right? Yeah. And it's something we can yeah. try and figure out after the show <laughs> or something. Yeah. It's plugged into the wall, but it's not plugged into the device. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Figure it out eventually. <laughs> Anything else? Um, that's about it. All right. Um, I guess it's my go. Uh, let's see. Well, most of my week's been filled with you know, dealing with the show. Um, we we're just emerging from one of our busiest weeks ever. I don't think anyone quite realized it. You know, because um, in the past week, this is like the fifth show we've done. Yeah. Like and four of them were interviews. Now, uh, you know, we didn't um, we did an interview on Friday with Borealis Games. We did an interview yesterday with Bulkhead Interactive, and you know the regular Wednesday shows, and that's not even including MSP. So, or the review. So, yeah, it's been a busy week. No, uh, but fortunately we've managed to tread on through it. Like um, personal news. I uh, had to pick up a new fan uh, a couple of days ago. The old one was starting to come loose um, with the fan blades that vibrate there. Ooh. And it's one of those fans that you mm. could dismantle easy. So, it, like, it was literally... I was 
Sometimes you can take them apart and tighten stuff up, but... Yeah, this was... It was easier just to get a new one because they are on sale because it's mid-September and they're getting rid of their inventory from the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, that's probably why you've been hearing fan noise if you've been hearing it. You know, it's a new fan, so haven't properly adjusted it yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Supposed to start looking for phones tomorrow after a couple months delay. Uh, we'll see how that pans out. And outside of that, I think we are good. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, MSP updates. Um, we are still slated to have a show um, this week, unless it gets canceled mid-show, um, which has happened recently. <laughs> so um, uh, we'll keep you notified on that as the show progresses. Anyway, so now it is time for the interview portion. And it's been a while, but this is an interview that's going to take um, the rest of the episode. Because, well, we have another veteran of the industry who has a very long career. And those usually require about, you know, the rest of the show to cover. Anyway, this week we'd like to welcome John Smedley of Pixel Mage Games. Hey, guys. Hey, uh, so how are you doing today? I am doing wonderful. Been uh, going at it since 4.30 this morning. Been at work, and um, but labor of love right now, so I'm really enjoying it. That's good to hear. Uh, I, I'm assuming you are filled with caffeine right now. <laughs> no, you know what? That was... Uh, the caffeine started with a, you know, double tall monster, then double a double uh, big gulp of Mountain Dew, and then later on Red Bull, double of those. Uh, yeah, it's it's been an interesting day. <laughs> and now there's someone on the side holding an IV drip of caffeine, just your caffeine for you. <laughs> no, I don't know if you guys have ever been to the point where you've just had so much caffeine during the day, you're a little sick from it. And you can barely stand. That's how I'm feeling. Yeah, I, I've actually been there. Yeah, like, um, been a while though. I just had uh, a cup of coffee and an energy drink a couple hours ago. So, not quite as much. That's, anyway, so uh, we'd like to start our interviews by getting into the background of our uh, guests, and we start out by asking what got them interested in video games in the first place. Oh, so um, for me, it was really easy, actually. Um, my father bought, uh, he, he was a, a chief petty officer in the Navy, and he bought our family a Apple II Plus, uh, I think it was 77, I want to say. No, 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 that's too early. Uh, it would have been 80, 1980. And for whatever reason, you know, he that was a lot of money at the time. It was like 2500 bucks uh, all told with, with the extra stuff he got with it. And I don't know what happened, but I just fell in love with it and learned the machine. And at the time, I was playing Dungeons & Dragons very heavily. And I got this idea in my head that wouldn't it be cool to, you know, program D&D into the computer? You know, what a naive thing to think. But uh, to me that was the only thing I ever wanted to do was, was make games. Well, to be fair, uh, trying to do uh, D&D was a popular pastime uh, in those days, even if the game wasn't called D&D. Right. Yeah, it was. It, it, and it was fun, but, you know, when, when you're a kid, 
I love the optimism of being a kid because there's nobody that's telling you you can't do something yet, which to me, that's kind of been an important theme in my life. I don't like it when somebody says you can't do something. It's more fun to, to try it, even if you fail. And the, uh, for me, the, the, the idea of coding Dungeons & Dragons just seemed entirely reasonable at the time. Um, I suppose it uh, behooves me to ask, how far did you actually get in coding Dungeons & Dragons on an Apple II? Um, exactly as far as you would expect from a, a kid in seventh grade, which was I basically did the character creator, so it rolled the dice for you, and I actually had a little dungeon up uh, pretty early on, but it was in Apple Basic, and it wasn't very fast or good. Was I, I didn't learn assembly language till a little later, uh, but, man, that was so much fun. I can imagine. And um, did you end up, like, playing, like, Wizardry or Ultima back in those days? So I, I, I played both. Um, I actually, interestingly enough, um, the guy who is now the president of Sony, I'm um, sorry, Daybreak Games, uh, Russell Shanks, uh, he, he and I worked together for, you know, most of our adult lives, actually. But we started going to high school together. Uh, I mean, we went to high school together, and that's kind of where it all started. And back in high school, every single day at lunch, there was a couple of us geeks in there playing with the computers. Um, and Russ and I, were we played the heck out of Wizardry. And Russ cracked um, Ultima. And that was the way I, I got it first, was a cracked version of it. And the the funny part about that is, you know, fast forward to many years later, and I've gotten to know Richard Garriott, and I had dinner with him one night, and 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 with with Russ there too, and I had to tell him that story about how his game, you know, how he pirated his game, but it was the most important, you know, game of my life. It really was because it, it, that's that game is the one that that really spurred me into wanting to make games for a living. Wow. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, like, you know, uh, Ultima was a pretty popular game back in the 80s. And, you know, it's like, it, if it wasn't Ultima, it was wizardry, wizardry that was influencing, like, the game designers of that generation. Oh, for sure. For sure. Like, in fact, we had the creator of Wizardry on the show not too long ago. Robert Woodhead? Yes. Oh, man, I'm going to have to go back and listen to that. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was uh, how long was that? I think that was about an hour and a half, two hours. It was oh, a wow, I'm definitely, uh. definitely going to go listen to that. I, I'm um, he's always been a hero of mine, um, and the 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 brilliance of that game and and it was programmed in Pascal, which was actually created at UCSD, you know, it's kind of by our offices. But what was interesting about it was. Now, I was learning Pascal at the time, so we were actually able to take it apart. It was it was pretty fun. Such a brilliant game. Yeah, and um, very influential in a lot of ways that, that people don't know about. Uh, as it brings out uh, RPGs on both sides. Uh, For sure. Yeah, that was episode 113B. Uh, anyway, um, so... What other games did you um, enjoy back in those days? You know, for me, the the thing that kind of hit home the most were the RPGs. So 
You mentioned the two big ones, ironically, uh, both Ultimate and Wizardry. I also love Choplifter. I don't know if uh, any of you guys were Apple guy. You're basically either an Apple guy, an Atari guy, or a Commodore guy. Um, and I say guy because actually I don't think they're the. I, I literally, among my group of nerd friends, there was not one girl with the uh, with a computer. And I, God, I wish they were there uh, back then. Now there's all these great gamer girls, but where were they when I was that age? Um, but it, you know, it's a, it's a real fun kind of time when you're, you know, you always remember your first couple of games and your first couple of games in the genre. So for me, you know, both Ultimate and Wizardry were very important in different ways. But other games like Choplifter, um, one of the big ones for me was actually Summer Olympics because I would play that with my dad. Uh, We'd switch off back and forth. Um, And there were other games back then some of the original um adventure i don't know if you remember that uh you know the whole zizzy and all that stuff god i love that stuff i played that thing for hours and and later on as as i became a game maker when you look at the source code for those games it you just laugh and it's like god those were good times well you got to work with what your hardware can do Oh yeah, and I was—I'm just—I'm laughing because it's so amazing to me what they could do in such a small amount of time. That's why games like Dwarf Fortress, to this day, still really impress me because of what somebody's doing, you know, with the machine they have. I, mean, I love it. Yeah, I'm like Dwarf Fortress is probably the most compact game I can think of. Like, oh yeah, yeah, it's, it's like the most complex game in the smallest space I can think of. I totally agree, and uh, it is it is a seminal game in my life too. And and, and actually, our current game, Heroes Song, um, that large inspiration from Dwarf Fortress. Oh, I mean, it's uh, huge. Yeah, Dwarf Fortress has been a great influencer for about uh, ten years now, like including Minecraft. Yeah, it's it's so funny that there's there's kind of it's a small cultish following of people that play it. It's a slightly bigger following of people that know about it, right? Yeah. And they did that one New York Times story that helped, but um, I'm finding that as I'm kind of going around showing Hero's Song off to people, this history um, idea that we we got from Dwarf Fortress, and, and, you know, we got it right from Dwarf Fortress, um, that idea... It, it looks like it's some new idea to people, and, and when I explain where it actually originally came from, they always get real curious about it. So I don't know. I, I think yeah, it's awesome. Dwarf Fortress is not one of the most user-friendly games, but oh. once you once you know what it's up to, it's got a lot of really it's it's incredibly in depth, and there's a lot of neat things that can happen. No, it's like a you know, it's like laying down on a beach with a, a whole bunch of needle syringes. You know, it, it's very painful. And and but after you get over that, it actually is pretty, pretty amazing game. The depth of it is so unbelievable, and 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 the idea of, you know, death as a story, uh, of, the the entire thing ends up being about, um, you know, the story of these dwarves that you over time, you know, you start to really get an attachment to them, and and and. And sometimes, in a sick sort of a way, you end up, you know, letting your dwarves do bad things to each other. It's it's so fun. 
Well, and the only end of the game is when they die, so... Yeah, that's... And Pretty much. That's why it's interesting, because if you really think about it, like, what's the thing that we play for? You know, and, and I say we, the collective we. When, when we're playing games, you know, we're obviously trying to entertain ourselves, but to me, I have just as good a time in that session where all my dwarves die as I do, you know, when when my fortress lasts weeks. I really do, because it's just different every time. And and to me, that's a really amazing thing about, uh, you know, games in general. But any game that can get you to tell a story later on about what happened to you in the game is a winner in my book. Hmm. Well, I mean, the answer to why we play... I kind of depends on what you're playing and has changed over the decades. Like why we played games back in the early eighties or the eighties entirely is completely different than what we do now. Well, uh, okay. Um, I'll challenge you on that. I don't think I agree with you. Why we play, not what we play. What we play is clearly changed, but why we play games, you know, I don't, I guess I've always been a gamer and I play games because other shit bores me, except reading. But TV's boring. There's nothing fun about that. It's a, you know, to me, it's engagement with something. You know, well, uh, I don't. I don't think it's changed as I much. I guess uh, people over the years. can play the games for the same reason they used to, but I think that there are a lot more reasons for that people play games. Yeah, now. that's more what I'm getting at. Ah, uh, okay. You know, it's like back in the '80s. You know. Your whys were a lot more, were literally a lot more limited than they are today. True. Yeah. That's very true. <laughs> you know, and, and certainly, you know, we didn't know that back then the tech seemed amazing to us, and now mm-hmm. it's just funny that we ever had to live with it. I mean, do you remember a time before, you know, iPhones? Because it's not that I don't remember it, it's that I can't comprehend it anymore. And it's kind of like that to me with, with, with some aspects of gaming. Like, I don't know why I started to play this kind of game. I can't remember. It's just fun. But I love it. Like, FPS is for me. I'm always going to have a love affair with those. I definitely get that. Uh, and I can remember a time before iPhones and smartphones. But, yeah, those are really hazy now. No, yeah, and our kids and our kids will literally never know those days. And to be fair, I never knew a world without computers. True, you know, and, and and that's you know, technology always advances. But I, I just think that the the need to play games mm-hmm. has always been there, and and the need to kind of amuse ourselves and engage our minds with something that's entertaining. You know, that's not about survival. And, you know, I think there's that oh, yeah, aspect, yeah. aspect that people want in their lives. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the desire to play games is as old as humanity itself. I mean, we're not just talking about video games. We're talking like, you know, board games that go back thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, and I don't know about you guys, but I am not a board game guy. Um, like, my wife loves board games, uh, I like card games, um, but I don't like board games at all. But you take a video game of the same thing, and I'll lo- I would love to play it. Except Monopoly. I fucking hate Monopoly. Nobody should like Monopoly. I'm sorry. 
You have to edit that. <laughs> no, no, we haven't. We're not um, harsh on the swearing or anything. So, okay. But uh, those are kind of my sentiments on Monopoly too. It's like many a, many a family game night um, descended into bitterness over that game. Tables were flipped. People were almost stabbed. Yeah. Just a regular <laughs> yeah, Friday no, night. I hate I hate two games. I hate Candyland and I hate Monopoly. And for entirely different reasons. I was about to say for entirely different reasons, probably. Okay, I'm interested to why you hate Candyland. Because anybody that has ever played with, like, a four-year-old and had the unlucky dice rolls where you keep getting sent back and sent back, and, you know, it's like, oh, my God, this is torture. I would, like, I would much rather read to my kids than, than uh, you know, play Candyland with them. I, I was I was lucky because all four of my kids play video games pretty heavily, uh, so I was I was blessed with that. Yeah, I, I, I'm definitely in the same boat. I've never really been a board game or a tabletop guy. I know my, some of my contemporaries are into that stuff, but it was always video games. You know, and I do enjoy playing video game versions of like board games and other things like that. Uh, we just reviewed one of those uh, like the other week, uh, and. and huh? I, I actually think the exception to that rule for me was Dungeons and Dragons board game. You know, it, it's it's such it's definitely by far the most important, you know, thing in my own formation as a game designer was that was playing Dungeons and Dragons. And I know a lot of people that play it actively now and, and now, honestly, I would probably rather play, you know, an online role playing game than, than uh, a physical one, only because that means I have to get together with people, and I'm a bit of a curmudgeon. Uh, I get that. It's also, well, ironically, um, D&D has become more like MMORPGs, or at least it was in, like, Edition 4. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, the, the early uh, D&D and AD&D was a lot different than what we got today. It is, but the, and the, there is a business reason for that, and that reason is simple. They they licensed that stuff, and they wanted a system that would work in games and other mediums, and it and I think it helped a lot. I think they were worried about losing out to an audience that expects things in a video game format. So well, it's not just that, um, you know. Th- it's just that there's a lot of internal history and the troubles with uh, the second edition. And it basically comes down to AD&D itself was on the verge of fragmenting into a lot of smaller games. Like, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad they were able to hold it together. I almost went to work there, actually. I actually got the offer. Uh, it was shortly after they bought the... Uh, or not bought, the after, Wizard? Uh, or? Yeah, it was, it was actually Wizards of the Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, after they bought TSR, and I got to interview with uh, Richard Garfield. I was going to bring magic uh, to the online world. Uh, it was long before any of that happened. Um, they're an amazing company. They really are. I, I love their IP. Sorry, I'm a little all over the place tonight. That's, oh, that's fine. 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 <laughs> that, that's why we scheduled the whole show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like we know how these conversations goes at this point. Um, I love talking about games. So yeah, yeah. So do we. Like you know, and when we get uh, and we when we get people who have very storied careers, they tend to go out like this. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so getting back to like you getting into video games, like 
you got in with a company called Knight Technologies. Um, yes. What was this thing exactly? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I'm laughing. Um, and it, there's a very funny story behind that name. As I'm, as I'm uh, talking to you guys, I'm looking at this Knight Technologies memorabilia that my wife had uh, framed for me. Um, I love this thing. Um, so Knight Technologies was my very first video game company. It started with just me, and then it gradually got bigger, and I hired you know a few people. It wasn't. It never got really big. I think. I think in our heyday, we were seven people. Um, but one of those people is uh, the lead tech guy on H1Z1, um, and another one of those guys is works for Amazon now. Um, and it, you know, so it's it's kind of funny. Even even the people that I work with way back when I was I end up working with. I love this business for that reason. But back then, um, I started in the game industry by by doing some contract work for a company, uh, Alien Technology Group, uh, ATG, um, and a guy named Harold Seeley, uh, really nice guy, um, gave me gave me a shot. And I ported kicks over to the, from the Commodore over to the Apple II Plus. Um, and by that time, I already knew assembly language, and I programmed a lot. I mean, that was really all I did, because I had dropped out of college uh, after about two years. Uh, it was just too boring, so I started programming. Then I was after the first gig, I decided to form a company called Night Technologies. Now. The funny part about that name is it came from Knight Rider. <laughs> that is a true story. Um, I don't know why I love Knight Rider so much. I know it's weird. And I still love the Hoff to this day. Broke my heart to see him eat that cheeseburger off the floor. Um, and say, the bizarre magnetism of David Hasselhoff. Uh, yeah, you know what? Uh, he seems to the Germans dig him. I don't get it, man. I don't get it. But um, I don't know if you, you ever saw the roast. Did you ever watch Kung Fury? Uh, which one? Kung Fury that like just it was just like this past year. As a he, he did oh, no. songs for it or something. No, it's, no, it's, I didn't. it's short. It's it's a it's a sort of joke thing, but it's very it's eighty ridiculous. Yeah, it's also very eighty. Yeah, <laughs> I love 80s. Yeah. That's why I like that show, Stranger Things. So, um, anyway, back in the day, it got up to you know seven people, I think, at, at its biggest. We and we did contract jobs, uh, and I eventually sold that to um, another company that was here in San Diego called Park Place Productions. Um, and you know, selling it—that sounds like a big deal. What it really was was you know. They liked me. They liked the team. They wanted us, and they were willing to pay off, uh, you know, the, the small amount of debt that we'd incurred. I think we'd incurred like thirty-five grand or whatever, um, and we paid it back and, and made a little money and, and went to work there. And then that company went out of business. And then uh, we went to um, a bunch of us went over to Sony because we were already doing a contract for Sony at Park Place. Mm. And in the time between there and kind of where I started making EverQuest, I made sports games. Um, and let me tell you, I hate sports. 
I mean, I hate sports. And, I, I mean, I can't stand any of them. You know, I can tolerate football. And, you know, I take it back, maybe UFC. I don't even call that a sport. I just like to watch one human being get pummeled to the ground by another. I'm okay with that. Um, and so I was doing sports games. I did baseball and hockey. And the other guy that was running that studio, um, Chris Whaley, he did uh, football and... I don't know, there was another sport. Oh, basketball. Yeah. So did that for, God, four years. And then started making um, this game EverQuest uh, after I fell in love with an online game that uh, was put out by a company called Simutronics. And it, to me, that was like the start of my online gaming career was playing the, their games. And I started playing them probably 92, 93, somewhere in there. Um, game called Cyber Strike. Um, were those muds? Uh, I'm sorry. Were those muds? Uh, no, 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 no. This was a action game. Okay. Um, I tried muds. You know, not for me. It just felt odd at the time. In hindsight, it probably would have been for me if I just found one, because all muds really are is just big chat rooms. You know, but no, no. This was an this was an action game, and it's one of the weirdest games ever. But I loved it. Uh, in fact, when I was running SOE, uh, we ended up putting out the sequel to it. Uh, we worked with Simutronics. But anyways, um, so I made made a game, an online game, called Tanneris first, and I was lucky enough to get that run by my old boss uh, Kelly Flock. He he was okay with starting to make some online games. Um, and I was still doing the sports games and some other boring shit. And uh, really, have I mentioned how much I hate sports? And <laughs> sports <laughs> games are just the worst. They're the worst. And, and the reason I say that, you try dealing with the NHL, <laughs> the MLBPA. Oh I mean, they're just a big bag of dicks. Um, they're hard to deal with, it, and I've heard some horror stories of like the NFL. Now, oh my God! Like the NHL was was, I didn't get to deal with the NFL, but the NHL was to deal with like twenty different people to get just the ability to use any actual teams in anything. You know, even even back then they did have their act together. They had the PA and the uh, NHL, so you always had to deal with both, and they both had their hands out, but. This is the stupidity they bring to the table. They would limit, at that time, and I don't know what the number is since, and I don't really care, but at that time, the average number of fights per game was 1.8. How they've gotten that statistic, I have no idea. But what they told us was, over a 10-game streak, you had to, it had to work out to 1.8. So, Thus immediately making the game 80% less interesting for anyone who actually bought it. Yeah, I mean they were that was they were trying to like you know oh hockey's not violent we don't want it to show that off like of course it's violent that's why there's even a remote glimmer of it being interesting so <laughs> you know, it, it's I mean the people that love hockey best are number one Canadians and I like that and number two dentists they get a lot of money anyway so I started making this game EverQuest. Um, and I was able to talk my old boss Kelly into letting me start it, and it was a lot of fun. I had, had a really, really good time doing that. 
It was never actually on the Apple IIe, but on the Apple II, but you eventually programmed Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> well, actually, know you know, with EverQuest, my programming days were long since past. Well, they're coming back now, but um, it's yeah, you know, it for me starting EverQuest was a real passion project for me because. That was how much I despised what I, the games I was making at the time. I just really couldn't stand working on sports games. And we had some non-sports stuff, but it was pretty dull. If I'm being honest, I'm a PC gamer at heart, always have been. And I'm, you know, I'm not really a console guy. I don't, you know, I, I made many, many console games, but mm-hmm. PC games are what I fell in love with, and really my first kind of home when I go to gaming. Um, is that one of the reasons why EverQuest was always aimed at the PC? It was, yeah. It was a direct response to working in a PlayStation studio. Um, it was, in fact, the, the the teams in that studio were very funny because um, I basically hired people that kind of liked magic and Dungeons and Dragons, and they were making sports games at the time. So, you know, none of us were on on that side of the studio. On Chris's side, they, they were football nuts, they, and they always called us the, the ghouls and the goblins, and, and it was like it was high school, you know. Um, we'd catch shit from these guys, um, you know, all the time about it, about what we were making while we were making EverQuest. And in fact, a funny story um, is that you know, they, they actually ended up getting cold feet and spinning off the team, uh, the team that is now what is Daybreak, um, originally was within the Sony studios. It was part of 989 Studios. Right. And Kelly, my old boss, um, I think he was having trouble explaining to the Japanese bosses what the hell we were doing with a PC game in the middle of a PlayStation studio right before PlayStation launch. <laughs> yeah, you know, in hindsight, after kind of running a company for a long time, I see his predicament uh, was not an easy one. And anyways, we, you know, we sure benefited from it. We were lucky. Um, and EverQuest took off. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so for those who don't know, um, this team was spun off into then, uh, was Baron? Varant, yeah. Although I think it was actually called Red Eye before uh, Varant. That's that's true. It was called Red Eye for a few days until we got a cease and desist. And back then, you know, that kind of shit scared me. And, you know, I didn't like who owned, legal who owned stuff. The name? Uh, I'm sorry? Who owned the name? Uh, actually, we would have done just fine with it now that I know trademark law a lot better. Uh, it was just some company that wasn't even in gaming. A lot of times, uh, if a company has a name, they want to protect it even if it's not in their you know, wheelhouse, which is actually not even legal. No. They're not even supposed to make the claim, but it doesn't matter. We, um, you know, we were like, screw it. So we sat in a room and made a name up. Yeah, copyright trolling is not exactly a new art form. No, it isn't. Uh, but it was. But but actually, back then, this was the early internet, so there wasn't the plethora of sites to go check stuff out that there are now. So it's kind of interesting. 
<laughs> so where does Vera, where does his name Varon come from? Our ass. <laughs> uh, it really, I'm, I'm not kidding. It was, uh, it was, we just made it up. We thought. It turns out it's a word in some other language, but it's not. It's basically it's nothing. It, it it was meant to be kind of, you know, just a something we could trademark. And then at the end of the day, the funny part is. So many people pronounce it Verant, and it just bugged the crap out of us. I don't know if any of you guys have kids, but if you have a kid and somebody pronounces their name wrong, it will drive you crazy. And it's that way with uh, with Verant to me, too. But I just realized, oh, we screwed the pooch with the name. <laughs> it's like, don't have kids yet, but um, I know the feeling when when certain people mispronounce words incorrectly. Oh, yeah, it drives me crazy. <laughs> Like one of our uh, colleagues who kept pronouncing Ocarina, Ocarina. Like, huh. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Moving on. <laughs> I'm guessing he was the guilty party. Well, no, well, no, no, no. It's it, it just that it, uh, some bitter feelings erupted over that because everyone would correct you know, until he yeah. finally did it. Uh, but like, like I said, that, that's still kind of a sore issue. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, he didn't think. And I, I'm normally a little bit of a stickler for pronunciation, and I've been super embarrassed by realizing I'm pronouncing things wrong before. Oh, I, look, I, I don't mind it um, when people don't know. It's just funny though. They, they've, and that happens a lot in our games too. Uh, you know, I'll get people that'll pronounce Kinos, Quinos, or something. You know, and, and you're like, what? Mm-hmm. And um, so, how many people were working on EverQuest in its um, initial development phase? Um, approximately 52. Okay. And we, you know, it, it grew over time. It started at about 25 and then kind of grew because I'm, I'm including the other people that, you know, supported the game because once we became a studio, uh, we had to have all that support, including customer service and all that stuff. Core development was probably 35-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, and that whole team was made up of people that, you know, 90% of the people didn't have any experience at all doing anything. <laughs> no, I mean, one of the one of the key designers on the game was delivering pizzas at the time. Wow. Um, mm. You know, it it was just... It it is the exact kind of project where you can look to it and say there are things that have magic, mm-hmm. and you can't always predict when they're going to happen. But when they do, it's awesome, and you got to ride it. And that's the way EverQuest was. Th- that team together was really impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you just looked at the some of the parts, you would have said, no, not really, not on paper. But they really just knocked it out of the park. Well, I mean. Uh- I'm impressed because it's something that might be lost in today's world, but you know, EverQuest was one of the trailblazers of MMORPGs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, and 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 it was fun living through those days. But you know, it's funny. It's I, I'm I'm 48 now, mm-hmm. and I'm at a point in my career where I'm looking forward thinking, God, you know, I hope there's as many years forward as I've already been in it, because I've been in it 28 years now, something like that. Um, 
but you know there probably aren't. But what I do know is that you know the the passion that you get in this in this business is just unlike anything else that I've seen. So much fun. I think we can corroborate that. As you know, we've spoken to other veterans, um, some of us who are even older than you, uh, and they still hold the same passions that the that we've seen from uh, the younger sets. Uh, yeah, that's why I try. Like it's it's interesting for me to reminisce about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, having lived it, it's pretty cool. What I want to avoid, though, is being the guy that talks about 20 years ago what I'm and and what I mean by that is like I don't I know a lot of gamers most of my friends are quite a bit younger than me because they're playing the same games I am and it's a very interesting thing to to watch um, over time because this that dynamic it's really changing, and I think it's awesome. Um, but but I've got to say, I can't see not doing this when I'm 80 if I live that long. I'm like, well, that's good to hear. It's like I'm sure video games, as the generations who have grown up or lived with them get older, video games will very much stop being considered in any way, like for young people. I'm like, yeah, I'm just not, for young people. I know a lot of people are nostalgic. I'm not even the slightest bit nostalgic. I can't stand that because to me, nostalgia means you know I'm spending a single second thinking about you know something I enjoyed in the past, and you know what, your days on this earth are finite, and I'd rather spend them making new shit than talking about the old shit, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I do. It's not a. It's not a viewpoint I agree with because of my background. I, I, I'm a historian by uh, trade. Huh. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, you know, it's like, and I know other people, some who have actually worked at Sony Online, who um, are interested in the past. And no, Brad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I know Brad really well. No, 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 not Brad. Um, do you know who Stephen Kick is? Stephen who? Kick. How do you spell the last name? Uh, K-I-C-K. Yes. Now, uh, yeah, he, he was an artist at uh, Sony Online, but now he runs a company called Night Dive that's into game preservation. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's cool. Well, yeah, we've had him on the program a number of times. Yeah, so. But, yeah. You know, it's, it's a funny, you know what, to me, and what, I, what I'm specifically saying about the nostalgia, like, doing interviews like this is fun. I like talking about that. What I don't want to be is resting on laurels of a game that I made 15 years ago. Mm. I don't want to be... I want to be relevant. It matters to me to... You know, I don't want to be the guy at that's the equivalent of um, when you go to see uh, Aaron Rodgers, you know, who used to play Buck Rodgers' female, you know, love interest at the con. I don't want to be that equivalent where you're, you know people are remembering you for yesterday instead of what you're doing today. I definitely get that sense as well, because like I said, a lot of the, you know, most of the people we have on young or old are usually focused, you know, they like reminiscing about the past, but they got uh, current shit they're working on as well. 
Well, yeah, yeah, and I didn't. I wasn't trying to shift the topic to that on this. It's more like I'm. I was just trying to explain um, when we're going back and talking about this. When we talk about Dungeons and Dragons leading to an EverQuest, mm-hmm. like to me, I'm always after that next thing. What's where are we going to take it next? Is it going to be VR? And you know, I don't know. I don't really know at all, but. Um, What's the next big thing? And I just like the idea that our business reinvents itself mm-hmm. and it keeps us, I think, a lot more current than a lot of other businesses. So I, that's why I just can't, can't see doing anything for the rest of my life other than making games. I get that. I, I do. Though, uh, shifting, uh, though shifting back to EverQuest, um, did you ever have the sense of magnitude of what you were doing back then as you do now? Um, yes, for about 10 minutes. Um, and I say that because expanding that game operationally was one of the hardest challenges of my career. And I'm very lucky to have worked with some of the best people there are. They're just tireless people because we were making it up as we went along. We no, there was no like guidebook on how to do this stuff. Now, it's so rote. If, if you want to launch a new game, you know, all the numbers are baked in already. You know all the, uh, you know all the server arrangements. You know all that stuff. You know where all the bodies are going to be buried. You know, you know when people are going to DDoS. You know, I mean, it's just a, it's, it's a science now, even though it's not a perfect one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it was different then. So that, To be fair, I think um, MMOs have... Uh, that kind of scale kind of have to be, uh, especially how they've grown over the years. Because make, oh, yeah. making MMORPGs are the most resource-intensive uh, genre there is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it literally has as many different ways that it can break at a time as there are people playing. Yeah, yeah and, you know, we're, we're, and we're now having to deal with external issues, mm-hmm. uh, the DDoS kind of stuff, and, and hacking and fraud. So, so... Times are a lot different now than they were, um, a lot more complicated. Social media has changed a lot of things about, you know, the gaming environment. That's true, but um, external threats to MMORPGs are as old as, well, the genre itself, because, well, I remember Ultima Online, and (laughs) a lot of the stuff that went on there. Oh, no, no, you're absolutely right. It's just that the magnification of that now with Twitter, which didn't exist back then. You know, it's it is so much more a threat these days. It's really escalated and it's kind of annoying. I I, I would definitely agree with you there. Yet, um, like, social media is just kind of a thing you need in this day and age. Oh, for sure. Um, anyway, uh, so... How long did you guys work on EverQuest um, in its like initial phase? March 1st of 1996 until March 16th, the day it launched, of 1999. So nearly three years exactly. Wow. And it cost about $4.5 million to make. Damn. Like, mm. It doesn't sound like a, whole, a lot, but keep in mind those are like late 1990s dollars. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, um, so... Uh, did you ever develop another game at your time at SOE? Or did you just shift that, like to a pure management 
um, position after EverQuest was complete? Well, to be clear there, I was always um, management. So, you know, Brad McQuaid led the EverQuest team, you know, and, and different producers led those efforts and led those development teams. What I was there for was both a combination of running the company um, and, you know, it's fair to say that I had a lot of influence over the games we made. Um, not all of them. Some of them, you know, I would support, but they weren't like my babies necessarily. Mm. Um, but a lot of them did really get a lot of my personal attention. So, you know, I would spend, and especially my last, the last game that I made while I was there, and, and, I, and I led the team that made H1Z1, mm-hmm. and that was an incredible blast and an honor to work with those guys. Um, and that's actually what what directly got me interested in doing uh, you know a startup again, is because actually you know working with the development team directly was just so much fun, and you know I always loved that, and you know the developers don't always love that. Sometimes they hate it when I'm involved. I'm sure the ones listening to this are are uh, laughing right about now. They know it's true, but you know. There are, I didn't get into this business to be the kind of person who runs a company and not, doesn't get involved in creative. Creative is what I'm in this business for. I like games. That's good to hear. Like, as, you know, there are many in this business who are not um, in it for the creative aspect. Yeah, I don't, you know, I have a hard time with those people, too, and, you know, I won't name names, but I've worked around a lot of them, not at SOE, actually, but um, within other companies, let's say. It, it It's scary to see execs that don't, in the gaming industry, who don't play games. I don't get it. You know, I don't get it at all. I would make a great, you know, McDonald's owner, too, because I would sample all this shit there all day long. I mean, at some point, if you don't love the thing you're doing, why are you doing it? The, um, the money usually comes to mind or some other reason. Uh, believe me, yeah, I, we, we, I guess. we've encountered those um, types on our program um, before. Not too often, thank God, but like uh, there was an interview six months ago that was really corporate, and I absolutely hated it. Now, mm-hmm. it, it I, yeah, that's definitely not me. Filled with marketing buzzwords and, you know, just a sense of false sincerity. Like, you know, we were obligated to do it, but I'm like, it's the kind of interview that if we did for a regular uh, basis, we wouldn't be doing this anymore. Because, you know, we're not... No, you, you have to make your product, too, you know? You're... Yeah. You're in this to make a great podcast. Yes. And, you know, it's like we don't currently make money from this. That may change as we build up the business. But um, we are passionate about games, you know, and we like meeting the people who make the game. That's why we all, that's why we start out our interviews getting the background and learning how people got into games in the first place. Oh, yeah. You look, there's, there is no way... In this business, you can just tell very quickly if somebody is a gamer or not. It, and, you know, on every single interview I've ever done, and I'm talking about job interviews where people have come in, you know, to apply for work, and I'm, and I'm the one doing the interview, you know, I'll always ask them what they play. And 
90 times out of 100, it's some old game. Mm-hmm. And that, that's when you immediately know they're not a gamer. If they're, if they're bringing up shit that was, you know, four years or, or ago or more, it's like, okay, you're not a gamer. <laughs> Don't tell me you are, you know? <laughs> uh, to be fair, I could see some people sticking with old games just because of, well, some of the bullshit that surrounds the current game gaming scene, but that's a discussion for a, another time. Well, it's, it's more about if you can, if they're still playing that game, a good example is EverQuest. There are a shit ton of people that were playing it God, is it 16, 17 years? I can't remember now. Um, 16, 17 years ago, mm-hmm. they're still playing it. And no, I, I, would, I would absolutely consider those people gamers. Absolutely I would. Um, so it's not just, it, it's more about are you really a gamer or not, and you can just spot the people that aren't, and, and I really wish they would just leave the business so that the rest of us can uh, you know, go on partying and enjoy it. You're not the only... I, I, I'd say there's something to be said for people who are better at business being in charge in some aspects, but on the other hand, I'm not sure that all of the people who say they're better at business or in charge of things are actually better at business, so... Well, just you know, there's plenty of business people that love games. So you know, I'm just saying that the, if you're going to be in this business, I think you should really like what you do. You should like games. Now, you know, there's many aspects of it that, that where that part probably doesn't matter. But I think at the top and and anybody that's making games, you damn well better. So speaking of business, um, why did Sony pick uh pick you guys back up? Ah, uh, yeah, that was weird. Um, well. Sony owned, Sony, um, when, when we were spun out as Verant, Sony did continue to own, a, a, I think it was a 20% stake in the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after EverQuest hit, and th- but it was a different division of Sony, by the way. Right. It, it was, um, for those who don't know, Sony Online Entertainment was managed by Sony Pictures. Or, yep. Uh, because it was like a, I'm not exactly sure why. I probably well, something to attack through or something like that. It was well, actually, it was originally um, part of Sony of America, mm-hmm. and then got moved under Sony uh, Pictures. In fact, I worked for Yair Landau um, for about eight years. Our company reported into him uh, underneath his uh, Sony Pictures Digital Entertainment. So, um, you know, those were kind of the golden years at SOE, and, and it was a really good time. Um, very different. Uh, being part of a movie company is a whole different animal than being part of a game company. Um, you take a lot of meetings, a lot of stupid meetings. Like, I mean stupid. Um, and I can tell you, do you, do you, do you guys remember the movie Stealth? Barely. I remember the trailers for the movie Stealth. Yeah, it was Jamie Foxx, yeah. the pilot, and all. It was right after his Oscar for, I think it was Ray or whatever that was. But um, they wanted us to make an so MMO the about Stealth. The advanced jet fighter that like, has AI and goes evil, right? Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. the one. They wanted <laughs> us to make an MMO about that. Like, they wanted us to make an MMO about and this will this will blow your mind. You remember the animated movie Beowulf? No, not not the animated, animated? one. Yeah, so it was Angelina Jolie. Oh, voice. oh yeah, the, yeah. the Roger Zemeckis <laughs> one. 
That's correct. I got to sit in a room and meet Robert Zemeckis. That was really cool. He's an amazing dude. Um, like, everybody knows the story of Beowulf, and we would have gotten to use exactly what was in the movie. So that would have worked out well. Um, you know, we there got... Make an MMO out of, and there are some things that you could make like a regular video game out of, maybe. Oh yeah, in fact, now that was the other part of the idea was to also make that. That, that might have worked out. That part of it might have worked out better, but at some point, you know, we're an MMO company. We just really didn't want to do that. But for every one of those, there was also the. Um, oh my God, we were idiots. I have the the Beatles story uh, for SOE was a funny one because um, my boss came to me and wanted to know if we were interested in this um, James Cameron movie that he was making at the time called Avatar. And I remember reading the script and laughing my ass off at the idea of when it, when it, explains, you know, who the Navi are and the, and the, how they're, you know, they're blue. Mm-hmm. You know what? There, it was, it was just like one they're of those like 11 foot ones. tall blue cat people. What's not to love? Yeah. And, and, you know, you think, oh, James Cameron, come on, you're an idiot. But you know what? Everybody gets a dud now and then. And, uh, Christ, that could have been, uh, it was so funny. So they, they wanted to make that. That would have been really, really if you'd made it, it probably would have been really lucrative in the short term, although Avatar, I don't think it's had as great of a uh, longevity as really popular, so... No, 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 you're right, but but we also got a chance to look at things like uh, Stargate SG-1. Mm-hmm. I was and remain a Stargate fanatic, like, insane fanatic. I've seen every episode, like, probably four times now, um, of all the shows. Oh, wow. And... We looked at that. It ended up actually going out to some uh, some other place uh, out in Arizona, I think, and, and it collapsed or something, uh, which is too bad because I think the Stargate universe is brilliant. You know, we looked at all kinds of good stuff. It, it's a fun, you know, it was a fun journey making a lot of different MMOs while I was there. Yeah. I had a great time. Um. Uh, how involved were you in the making of PlanetSide? Um, pretty involved. Pretty involved. And I love that game. It, inter- I mean, interestingly enough, I actually, as a tactical game, I think I like it better than PlanetSide 2. Um, as a, but that's just the tactical part of it. As a moment-to-moment experience, there's no no question about it. It's it's Planetside 2. But, yeah, I was pretty involved. In fact, um, I found the lead programmer. We started the St. Louis studio. We had a St. Louis studio uh, for a good while uh, around one of the best programmers I've ever worked with uh, named John Ratcliffe, who now works for NVIDIA. Um, he's just a wonderful guy. So, yeah, I got pretty involved. A lot of people don't know this, but if you actually look at the names of the tanks in Planetside, you will notice that they bear a striking resemblance to the names of the tanks in Tanneris. And that is because 
Clement Side was really the sequel to Tanneris. So I just huh. like, haven't really ever talked about that before, but really, I think of, yeah, that's an interesting bit of information. Yeah, I, I suppose it, it beckons that. Uh, what was Tanneris exactly? Um, so Tanneris was a direct result of me being in love with this game, Cyber Strike. And Cyberstrike, it's a, this hard-to-describe game because there's these little, sight, like, robot-looking things that you're piloting, and you take over territory with these power towers, and you can't move outside of your territory because there's no power. Uh, in fact, Planetside 2, I really wanted to put that exact mechanic in. I loved it. Um, and we did put it in Planetside 1. But but the the core idea was I wanted to learn how to make online games because I already knew that's what I wanted to do. I didn't want to make freaking baseball games. Baseball is the worst sport ever. Um, oh, I don't know. Cricket exists. I'll watch a cricket game any day over, over baseball. Cause a cricket no, you game, won't because cricket games take more than a day. Yeah, no, I was going to say, cricket games can take a few days, but <laughs> the actual number of hours you're watching... Uh, you can kind of avoid a lot of it. But you're right. <laughs> so, anyways, kind of... <laughs> anyway, um, so how did SOE transition into Daybreak? Um, basically, it was just very simple. I think uh, at some point, Sony saw some good opportunities to you know, exercise some synergy and get some I don't know what the right corporate bullshit word is there um, honestly it's a, it's a, it was pretty simple uh, Sony wanted to kind of get down to its core what it was doing and Columbus Nova ended up making a great great offer and, and they are wonderful guys gotta, gotta tell you they are good people and they continue to run that place um, I think with and showing the, the people there a lot of respect, and, and that matters to me more than just about anything else. That's good to hear. Yeah, yeah, they're good dudes. Yeah. So I suppose we have to touch upon um, the reason why you left uh, Daybreak. Right. Uh, sure. Was there any particular reason why uh, you went on to the indie scene? Um, well, when I left I left Daybreak, you know, it was kind of an awkward departure because, you know, the, the there was, you know, some, some stuff going on with some hackers that were after me and doing some stuff, and I just didn't want to, you know, bring that mess into the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was starting to, and that was a problem. So it was the right time. I'd been doing it 15 years or 16. I can't even remember now. I'd been with Sony, you know, before that since December 23rd in 1993. So, yeah, it it was a good run. I really loved Sony. Loved Sony Pictures. You know, I got to work for Kazurai. I got to work for Andy House um, directly. I got to work for both those guys directly. And I got to tell you, uh, both of them are gentlemen and really good people. And so, you know, they're, they're kind of made me uh, 
sad to see Howard Stringer go, but I got to tell you, Cause was such a wonderful uh, cheap of Sony. I'm glad to see where it's going now. For the most part, I agree. It's you know, it's just unfortunately like today they just announced a whole bunch of layoffs at some Sony studios. So remember when I told you about the baseball studio? Right. That would be that was the studio I started. Yeah, uh, Sony San Diego. That's correct. So that studio used to have EverQuest in it. Mm-hmm. And many, many, many moons ago. And in fact, I literally remember, you know, the very first day in that office. And God, it's weird that when I read that today, it made me sad. I understand there's business reasons for all of it, but, you know, I know a lot of those people. And the guy that runs that studio, Scott Rohde, he's a, he's a good guy. And I'm sad to see him, you know, have to do this stuff, but it has to be done sometimes. Yeah, and, and to bring it around, I'm like, um, the people who were let go at Sony San Diego were everybody but the MLB, the show team. Right. So sports still persists there. And what's funny is, remember that how I said I hate baseball? <laughs> ML, MLB, the show, was the direct descendant of MLB pennant race, which, uh, you know, it, there was a line directly to it. And another in, in another bit of irony, mm-hmm. um, that year we were late delivering the baseball game. And Dave Justice was on the cover of it. And a couple years ago, I'm in, I'm going to, you know, school enrollment night, you know, or, or new, new kid night or whatever it is, you know, where you, where you have to sit there and listen to a teacher yap at you for an hour. Um, and I'm sitting next to Dave Justice, who has a kid in my daughter's class. It was funny. Uh, when I told him the story, I could see he obviously gave exactly no shits, but <laughs> but for me, it was pretty cool. Like, hey, mm-hmm. you, know, yeah. you got to be with Halle Berry, and I got to sit in an office and make a shitty game. <laughs> <laughs> I'm slightly baffled by, one, the fact that there's still a professional sports game that isn't owned by... I guess there's only one thing I'm baffled that there's still a professional sports game that isn't owned by EA. Exclusively. I can explain. I could explain that to you in uh, pretty good detail. Um, but it, it basically boils down to when EA bought the exclusive NFL license, uh, 2K Games responded by buying the exclusive MLB license, except for first parties. I'm like, and you know, baseball games aren't as popular as football games. Cost 2K Games a lot of money. When the contract ended, they opted out, and um, from what I understand, the MLB has pretty much priced itself outside the market, outside of the show. Ah, that mm-hmm. makes sense, I guess. But yeah, sports games in general, I think the only reason why they still get made is that there are some people who'll buy them, and because there's always new stuff every year, they can crank out a new game every year. Now, also, the, the show makes money for Sony. So. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, um, so uh, getting to your new company... Um, Pixel Mage games. Yeah. Um, how, how long has it existed for? And, um, um, what are you trying to do with it that is different from you know all the MMO stuff that you've been doing for the past couple decades? So, the genesis of Pixel Mage uh, came from my love of Dwarf Fortress um, and Terraria. 
I wanted to make uh, the game that I personally always wanted to make. Um, we had uh, EverQuest Next um, at, at SOE. Um, one of the big things that I wanted in that game was next-level AI. And I've always had this idea of a virtual world in my own head. And, you know, when you're running a company and a, there are people under you that are creative, you can't always just do things exactly the way you want. Um, as, as awesome as that may sound, it wouldn't be very much fun for them. So, you know, we were headed some pretty cool directions there. And, and you know, I was bummed that it got canceled, actually. But what, I, what I've always wanted to do my entire gaming career has been making a virtual world. I mentioned this, that whole Dungeons & Dragons thing. Mm -hmm. It started out as a simple idea like that, like the D&D &D I was playing... And, you know, the idea of how do you put that into a computer was, I didn't know how to do that at the time. But fast forward to now, and I wanted to make a company that was about seriously next level AI um, and building virtual worlds. I'm not interested in theme parks. I can't stand theme park MMOs. I've been there and done that. I'm just done with them. And I'm most interested in the idea of, of procedural content, but not not in kind of the um, a directionless way, but in a very focused, story-driven way. You've got to admit, I don't see that too often um, when it comes to procedural generation. Usually when we talk about procedural generation on the program, it's in relation to roguelikes. Right. And which, which, by the way, our game Hero Song is a roguelike. Mm -hmm. Um But it's roguelike because we check all the roguelike boxes. You have to add in the virtual world component, which doesn't exist in roguelikes, uh, in the core roguelikes. But you have to think about it more broadly. What I mean by roguelike, number one, permadeath. Death is real. And you don't get attached to your character. And that is something that I think people are going to not quite understand about what we're doing and something I want to make sure I, I make clear. Where, when I say you're not going to get attached to your character, I'm saying you better not get attached to your character. It would be like doing it, not in an FPS, but in any action RPG, your character dies a lot. Um, we went way harder than any of, of the others because we're not health potion based. You can't just pick up a health globe and you're healed. We're actually more survival game than that. So you take some Terraria, you take some Dark Souls level of, of difficulty mm -hmm. and mix it with Dwarf Fortress and then put some Ultima Online in because we have a 200 person multiplayer and that's, that's what I've always wanted to make. And I was just lucky enough to get you know, some people to believe enough in what the vision that I had to both loan and give us the money um, and also to put together a team of you know some of the most talented people out there. So how many people are at Pixel Mage uh, currently? Um, now we're up to, I think we're up to 18 now. And we're at about just a little under 2.8 million in spend and, and we're just about to hit that. 
Uh, and in fact, we're, we're currently raising on Indiegogo another 200K. Um, we're just about, you know, to the point where we're going to put it up on early access, and it's already gone up on Indiegogo, and, and uh, we're getting good response there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with any luck, this is going to have paid off. Um, but, God, it's been fun to make. So even if it doesn't uh, financially pay off at the end of the day, the journey was worth it because it's just been amazing to to get to make a game again. Mm. That's good to hear. And um, so why have you uh, brought Hero Song to crowdsourcing? So a couple of reasons. The The first is we need the money and would prefer to appeal to the community to uh, get some funds as a pre-order. And we, we did a failed Kickstarter early on. And so, you know, a little bit of this is also kind of making up for that. It wasn't a very well-run Kickstarter, if I'm, if I'm being honest. And, and because of that, you know, we felt the need to at least offer some of the same stuff we had, mm-hmm. like the T-shirts and stuff. We had a bunch of people ask for that, and there's no real mechanism to do that on Steam. You can't, uh, you, you can't sell T-shirt kind of stuff that way. So we, we, we decided to go ahead and do this. So it's come by those those couple of things. Indeed. And um, so, what lessons did you learn from um, the failed Kickstarter? Well. I think the the biggest thing I learned was you better bring the goods uh, when you're trying to get money from people. And while getting investment was easy, what I realized was, and I realized this too late, we just didn't have enough gameplay. and, and, And our game is complicated to explain. Really fun and easy to play but the explanation is actually harder than the the game is to play. So we had, you know, a very, um, I I think the video itself, the quality was good, but the gameplay there just wasn't there. And, you know, I had hoped that people would maybe look past that, and it looked like it was going to miss. And, you know, we thought maybe it would come in at five or six hundred grand. And so I pulled the plug. And our, we already had an agreement with our existing investors to, to, for this contingency, and that was that. Yeah, that makes sense because you know we've talked to other people this year about who have run Kickstarters, and they've said it's harder to do now than it was a couple of years ago, which unfortunately makes sense because you know the honeymoon period around crowdsourcing is kind of past, yeah. and you know we're we're also. Um, post some high-profile failures. So people- yeah, looking at you, mighty number nine. So <laughs> well, I mean, you know what? I, while that may be true, I like. I'm a big believer in you know making sure that when I look in the mirror, I'm honest with myself first, uh, because you know what? It just there are plenty of kickstarters that succeed, and I think ours could have succeeded had we waited until we have what we have now. Um, that is, I think that is the, the differing key in the world of today. Like, um, uh, John Romero ran a Kickstarter not too long ago, and it ran into about the same problems that you had. Yeah. It's like people need to see, like, more of the actual game these days. 
And, and you know what? I mean, I'm, I got to be honest. I feel the same way. And I definitely feel that there's a, a very heavy, you know, there's a tax when you are using Kickstarter or anything else. And that tax is that you have to provide a ton of information on a, just a, a steady flow basis. And it's not a tax in a bad way. It's a tax in a way that you have to think about before you launch the, you know, any kind of campaign, you've got to make sure that you've got that stuff squared away. And, you know, a lot of that's water under the bridge now. And, and, you know, it seems obvious and probably was to a lot of other people, but, you know, honestly, I may learn from a mistake, move on. And now I, I think I'm very comfortable that our, our uh, numbers are good on our current Indiegogo and, will hit that just fine and you know I'm, I'm excited to get the game out in early November to our fans yeah, that makes sense uh, you know and yeah it, it's like we've talked to others who you know ran into that problem of you know they thought that like um, the name of what they were bringing to the table was going to be enough and it turns out it, it wasn't so that they had to change track and I, you know, like show more of the game and stuff like that. You know, the the I think if the most brutal, honest truth for myself is, I probably did think that it would be enough to announce, you know, that I was making a game, try to explain it, um, and announce, you know, who some of the partners are, Patrick Rothfuss and others, mm-hmm. and I'd hope that that would be enough, and I think that was in hindsight, just stupid, you know, ego bullshit, because I don't... I wouldn't have backed that initial thing in in hindsight. It's just obvious. We didn't explain the game well enough, and, and it actually made me reflect after we did that on kind of how I wanted the next six months of development to go and that's why actually we just went completely dark I would tweet out an occasional screenshot but you know it's like I wanted to get to the point where put up or shut up um, to show what we were doing plus we can show the game now and it's really easy to explain when you're actually showing it's really hard to explain in a you know back of the box kind of a thing or at least I suck at explaining it yeah, point them to a YouTube video instead of trying to draw it out in crayon, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it's... Yeah. We... So, you know, that that's a live and learn thing. Um, I will say, though, that the development of the game has been just amazing. Uh, the team is great. Those are a lot of superlatives that I'm throwing around there, but the... Some of the the way the ideas flow on this team is very different than I'm used to. And I like it a lot. And when I say it's very different than I'm used to, um, when you work at a company like an SOE for as long as I did, with the same people for a very long time, you get used to doing things a certain way. And coming outside of that sort of, you know, enclosed environment, 
amazing people making amazing tech, and it was great. But there's a whole other world out there of other tech. So Unity is fantastic when it's not Satan, <laughs> um, and it frequently is. I reboot my machine probably four times a day. Um, my task manager is constantly up. Uh, but I understand that, you know, what they're trying to do, and I think they do it better than anybody. Uh, so and it's, it's a lot of fun to, to use when it's working. Uh, so it's, it's just been a blast. We were just having an engine discussion um, the other day, although that was over UE4 and what that uh, can do well. And yeah, like, and you and we have a lot of developers who work in Unity, and you know, they both love and yeah, sometimes hate Unity for a lot of the same reasons. Oh, it's and it's it's like some X that you just had a massive fight with that you know you love it, you hate, you love, you hate. It's like that on a constant basis. And, you know, when your game is running perfect, it's exactly like that best makeup sex. When it's not, yeah, not so much. I think that's the first time that metaphor has been used on our show. Good job, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I'm like, we can definitely attest that, you know, we have played some Unity games this um, year that have been not so good. Like, uh, and especially because, well, Unity is kind of a bitch to optimize. Yeah, that's true. There's a whole bunch of uh, bad ones out there. And we're not going to be one of them because it's, you know, the, it's both good and bad that Unity is so easy to use that a lot of people can make games. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, you know, there's a separation, at least I'd like to think there is, from people that have been doing this for almost 30 years and that's actually a large number of people on the team. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to think we, we know what we're doing on that front, and you know we're optimizing like crazy. Now, my own team is probably hearing this right now, and one or two of them are probably flipping the screen off right now. Um, and they're right, because they're fighting this fight right now, and they know how hard it is. Right. Oh, I don't doubt, doubt it. Um, but anyway, so um, is the game going to hit early access during the campaign or after? Well, it'll be, it's after the campaign. It's, it's, uh, I, I've been real clear about the dates. Uh, it's going to be early November mm-hmm. um, for early access. And we're having what we call Alpha 3. We're in Alpha 1 right now internally. Alpha 3 um, is going to be in late October. And we're going to be letting people into that that are uh, pre-ordering through Indiegogo. Right, and speaking of which, um, tell us a bit more about the Indiegogo campaign itself. Like, um, what kind of goals are you uh, trying to reach at the initial level, and what kind of stretch goals do you have afterwards? So we, we have, um, you know, the initial goal is pretty reasonable. Uh, it's 200 grand, and we have stretch goals, I think, at four and 600. Um, for races, we have some races that will unlock uh, if we can get the the money for an extra person and uh, some additions to housing, uh, but that one's 
already coming, but it's not going to, we're going to move it to kind of number one in the queue after we launch. Okay. And um, <clears throat> is that like all the stretch goals? Yeah, that's it for now. Like, I don't believe in putting out a thousand stretch goals. Well, that's good. That's good. That's probably, yeah, putting out tons of stretch goals is sometimes the downfall of otherwise promising programs. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't want to be, you know, stupid about it. We're at we're at sixty thousand five hundred and ninety six right now. You know, with uh, with twenty three days left. You know, we'll make it, but we still have work to do. Oh, so yeah. it's, you know, got to take. Got I got to be reasonable about my expectations and. You know the truth is we have to make make it really clear. It's got four hundred grand. It's additional playable races with the trolls, the ogres, and the uh, satyrs. And at six hundred, it's an advanced housing system that's going to be completed a lot sooner. Um, so yeah. I think what my colleague is uh, actually referring to is feature creep. Like you know you you know you have stretch goals that you didn't initially plan for. You know. Oh, I, I apologize. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I don't like that. Yeah. This stuff we actually plan for it, um, and we and we have specific action items that if we hit these goals, we know what we can do to turn these on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we're we're trying to be careful. I don't want to, I didn't want to put a lot of stretch goals up. No, that that's actually a good thing, and that's something I really hope that people have taken away from, um, you know, the mighty number nines of the world. It's you know. Um, don't exceed your ambitions because it usually doesn't end up well. Yeah, Bloodstain just put out a thing where they realized that they might have gotten that they have a lot. They need a lot more work than they thought they did. So they're well. I think that's, I don't know if they had a date before then before that, but they announced a later date was, that people were expecting. It was supposed to come out March 2017. Yeah, that's, so they announced a delay in that, and they of course they said that they're put making positive uh, steps towards getting the resources they need and stuff, so that's good, as opposed to uh, and they're being upfront about it, but it's still you have to be careful with feature creep because otherwise a really promising looking project can end up in a really bad place. I think that also leads to another question I have is um, um, what's your timeline look like uh, in releasing the game? March. Hmm. And I'm saying that up front, and we're going to hit it. And the reason I'm doing that, I can't stand, you know, the, the and I'm not going to name names, um, but I can't stand games that have been in for years and years. It's ridiculous. I'm like, I think that's about every Kickstarter game I can think of. Like, even a lot of the majorly successful ones hit delays along the way. You know, they do, but, you know, like, I'm, I'm actually really proud of the, of you know, I'm not there anymore for it, but I'm proud that the guys that, had um, Daybreaker launching out of uh, early access. I think there was a sense while I was there, and, and I can see it remains, that, you know, you finish what you start. And, yeah. you know, you, I don't think any reputable company that wants to be in business for any length of time, if you screw your Kickstarter supporters, I mean, I just the thought, not only would it never occur to me, it's disgusting to me. I'm, it's like I don't think the um, screwing over always happens intentionally. It, it, that's more. No, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Like, um, like Broken Age comes to mind. It's like you know, I don't think Double Fine intended 
what happened there, but you know, it, it's that's still a good example of what happens when a project gets away from. You. Yeah, and and I you know there's certainly very large projects you know that companies that have been given a lot of crowdfunding money and I I have to say you know in this is a lot of this is a bit new to me because you know I've been at a company for a long time that had a you know revenue source and and so this is very new to me but. I don't like the idea of constantly crowdfunding. I don't want to be in that mode. Um, to me, the way I look at this is it's our fans and hopefully people that want to be in our community supporting us so that we can kind of build this for them. And I like that, that core idea. I just don't want to see it abused. That is definitely understandable. It's like, um, because, yeah, if you get a bad reputation, uh, especially when it comes to crowdfunding, um, you're pro- it's probably not going to be a viable solution to you in the future. Yeah, but it's just a douche thing to do, so. Yeah, that, that too, you know. It's like, yeah. we're, pretty, we're pretty easy. Um, yeah. We're going to do what we say we're going to do. If anything happens that slows it down, we're going to tell people what that is. And it's not going to be like, oh, by the way, we're going to slip five years or a year or even six months. You know, none of that stuff. It's, it's just not how it goes um, or how it should go, I should say. Yeah. I think and that's it, another thing that sunk mighty number nine. It's just the utter lack of communication that went on there and miscommunication was um, abhorrent and you know, made people a lot madder than... Perhaps they should have been. Um, yeah, I would I would agree, but you know, communication's a tough thing sometimes when you're when you're dealing with issues like this because there's never going to be an answer that's going to be a good one, but it has to be a timely one, and it also has to be an honest one, and it ha- and it has to be forthcoming immediately. But sometimes people don't like the answers and. You know, at some point, you just got to let them know what you think, what's going to happen, and let them make their own call if they want to, you know, refund or not. Yeah, well, that pretty much happened with Bloodstain. I mean, Igarashi was literally in tears over the delay. And, you know, he clearly didn't want that to happen, but, you know, unfortunately, sometimes delays happen. Well, I think you know. And, and it is ultimately true that a delayed game is eventually good, and a game that's released terribly is terrible. bad forever. Although yeah. with patches nowadays, that's less true than it used to be. Certainly. Yeah. Well, there are you know there have been many games now that are starting to succeed, kind of over time a little more, and I think some fans are willing to try older games if, you know, if they get a good reputation again. Uh, but it's hard. It's really hard. And and the way the MMO life cycle works and the way a lot of online game life cycle works is, you know, you, you build a base and then all of a sudden another game comes out and that can take it. And if your game is good enough, hopefully it can keep a base. But not, not every game can. That is the sad truth. Well, I... 
I think that'll about do it for this uh, interview. Um, uh, I know I'm looking forward to hear a song, and uh, well, thank you. You know, it's like hopefully we'll get a chance to review it when it comes out in March. Well, and um, we wish you luck on your uh, Indiegogo campaign. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be on tonight. Yes, uh, we are too, especially since our plans didn't have to change. <laughs> Thank you about that. Sorry, sorry for the for the mad scramble. It's fine. We, we we've dealt with it before. No, it's just, you know, it's just we prefer not to have to come up with something, you know, that we had in backup. So. Oh no, I understand. I understand. So, well, thank you guys. I appreciate the time. Yeah, no problem. No problem. All right. Um. All right. So yeah, that'll about do it for this installment of Fragments of Silicon. Um. Be sure to join us after this for Moonhawk Studios presents. Um. Looks like this week. Um. It hasn't been canceled yet. Yes. <laughs> um. So be sure to tune in on Sunday for our reviews. Um. This week we are reviewing the Turing Test. We did an interview of that um, yesterday with Bulkhead Interactive. I recommend and checking that out. Um, and, okay, we were initially supposed to review Ride this week, but uh, I think uh, Galax mentioned that our beta copies didn't translate into final copy. Honestly, the first time I've ever uh, seen that happen. So we're trying to... We, sk- so obviously we can't... We can't play it for a review if we don't have the codes now. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, we did get an offer to review another game from our partners at uh, Head Up Games. They're a pretty um, reliable source for review fodder for this program. Um, so they sent us a, a... I'm not exactly sure what it is, but it looks like a corp game um, in pixel form. It's called Safety First. It released a couple of days ago. Um, we just got the codes today, so I don't think anyone's had time to actually play it. We've seen some videos of it, though. It's it's one of those games where, like, the main point of the game is wrestling with controls that are awkward. Like, you've got a body that you're trying to control that uh, you don't have the most easy way to do it. Right. And um, the thing is, it looks pretty small, pretty short, like um, it probably has a lot of levels, but they're all probably within a certain fairly small yeah. variety of what you do in them. Also, the game is like three dollars, so I'm not expecting a lot of content for that amount of money. So uh, we'll have more on that on our review uh, later on. As far as ride, we put in the requests to two tribes for the uh, review codes. I don't know how uh, how much time that's going to take because. Um, the game just came out yesterday, so I suspect they're dealing with a lot of people who are trying to get review codes to this game. Yeah, we're still interested in reviewing it. We just can't do it until we can actually play the final version. Right, so that may come a few weeks from now. Uh, all right, uh, take care, John. We're all right, have a, good, have a good night, guys. Yeah, we're about wrapping up here anyway. We just got to get through our schedule. Like, yeah. Anyway, um... Coming up next week, we've got two interviews, and we may have another irregular time schedule. Um, first up, we got our... Okay, well, we're definitely going to have an irregular time schedule because um, next Tuesday isn't a morning review. It's an evening review. 
And that's because the uh, the um, not so much the well, they are a developer, but we're really interviewing the publishing side. It, uh, Douglas Bogart of Limited Run Games. Um, so for those of you who don't know what Limited Run Games are, um, they are they are the publishing arm of Mighty Rabbits. They're a developer that's been around for I think about six years. Um, but the point that is, sure is a name. Yeah. Um, anyway, but. So Limited Run has made a splash this year um, doing what their namesake says. They make limited runs of digital games. Like, um, they've uh, they put out quite a few. Um, quite a few of, uh, from companies we know. Like, they, they put out a retail version of, say, Lost Sea. Um, they're doing Rabby Ribby. Uh, they just announced, like, they're doing retail versions of Thomas Was Alone, Volume. And there's a lot more here. And yeah, they're and they're done in like um, prints of thousands. And it's also worth noting uh, right now they're very PlayStation centric. Like if you want a physical copy of an indie game on PlayStation Vita and PlayStation Four, they're probably your go-to guys there. I'm like I know they're trying to expand into other platforms, but that hasn't quite panned out yet. I don't know if they ever plan on like doing the PC, but. You know, they are doing a, a service to people who are interested in limited run uh, of uh, physical games of indie titles that usually don't have physical editions. You know, yeah, it's a bit different than what we, what we usually deal with here. And that's one of the reasons why I'm interested in interviewing them. You know, it, the other is because they've made a big splash in the enthusiast set. set. Now, I, I hear about them a lot. Um, anyway, also coming next week, not necessarily on Wednesday, because um, when I set this up, they actually wanted to do it on, like, Friday. And I'm trying to get... They haven't, they haven't gone, uh, confirmed yet, but you know, I'm seeing if they can do it Wednesday or Friday. Anyway, um, next up is uh, Sebastian Gonzalez-Caneta. Uh, I may be mispronouncing that, uh, of Ace Team. Um, we just did a review of their latest game, The Deadly Tower of Monsters. Um, they're a development team out of Chile that do, they, they do really, really quirky games. And they work with Atlas a lot. Um, they've made uh, Xenoclash, uh, the first Rock of Ages, um, Abyss Odyssey, which was a um, roguelike platformer, uh, and the Deadly Tower of Monsters. And they're making their latest game, Rock of Ages 2. And for those who haven't played Rock of Ages, I recommend doing it just because you, it's one of the craziest games I've ever played. Um, it's a tower defense game where you um, take turns rolling a, uh, a face ball. Yes, I, it's a ball with a face. A bowling ball with the face, and sure, why not? <laughs> and it's set up in a circle setting, and you try to break down this gate. I- I'm like, that's only kind of touching upon the insanity of what this game is. I played, I played the first one. I liked it. Like, it-, it was really creative, and I'm hoping that the second one is as creative as the first one. All right, so that's what's coming up in the next week. Sorry if that's a bit long-winded. It's just 
we've been dealing with a lot of change this month. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So until Sunday, or for those of you who stick around, until about mm, a couple minutes from now, um, we wish you good gaming.